Hello and welcome to episode 1108 of Effectively Wild, a Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I am Jeff Sullivan of Fangraphs, joined as always by Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Hello, Ben. Hello. How are you? I'm okay. That's good. Mm-hmm. Okay. Good small talk. <laughs> well, uh, this is the the last day of our raffle entry. I don't know when this specific podcast will be published. So perhaps as you listen to this, it's already passed. But Friday, I guess officially at the end of morning will be the mm-hmm. uh, the cutoff for the raffle entry for Hurricane Harvey Relief, where you can get the uh, the excellent swag of Russell Carlton's new book and Effectively mm-hmm. Wild t-shirt, Ben and Sam's book that I'm definitely not jealous of not being involved in, and a broken <laughs> microphone, which I actually am not jealous of not being involved in. But firstly, I would like to say all uh, all credit should go to you, Ben, for this idea. I think it came innocently enough out of making a, I think it was a throwaway joke about raffling off the microphone. Mm-hmm. And then somebody just thought, actually, you should uh, you should do that. But the donation angle, entirely Ben's idea. He's the one who puts thought into everything. And so credit to you. But I don't know what kind of expectations you had when uh, when this began, but they've uh, <laughs> the reality has certainly exceeded mine. I can say that yeah. much for sure. I think yeah. we're, we're up around, right in the vicinity of $9,000. Right? That's right. Mm-hmm. Which is uh, which is incredible, and I guess the drawing. I don't know exactly how you plan to do the drawing, but I would assume it's going to be with a Microsoft Excel random number generator. Would be, yeah, I uh, could do that. I found something called randompicker.com oh. that I think I can use to maybe make it public in some way. So mm-hmm. I will probably try using that. But yeah, the raffle format was suggested by listeners, I think, because I had initially thought of an auction, and I'm glad we didn't do an auction because I don't think anyone would have bid $9,000 <laughs> on this package. So a raffle was definitely a better idea. But even so, yeah, I am very impressed by the degree to which our audience came through here. It's really nice to see. The, I don't know, one of the unfortunate angles here is, as mentioned, immediately prior to beginning to record the podcast, it already feels like we're a little behind because there are developing disasters seemingly everywhere. But yes, uh, I guess we can always try to break more things yeah. that we use and try to <laughs> sell them off. Yeah, no, I don't. I don't have any other fun broken stuff lying around. I don't think, but maybe I'll I'll get some over time. But yeah, it feels like it's a good time to wrap up this raffle because the world has already moved on to trying to help other people in maybe even more acute need. So anyway, it has been a pleasure to see all of these hundreds, I guess, of emails rolling in over the past week or so, many of them with nice messages attached. So thanks to everyone. Yeah, you have uh, definitely answered the call and been some. I'm sitting in a uh, in an old, not very good anymore office chair. This is an office chair that I've been sitting in for uh, about six years of, uh, of daily baseball writing. This is an office chair that has survived falling out of a moving truck in a busy intersection during rush hour. It's uh-huh. got the battle scars, so I guess yeah. let's start the bidding at $10,000. <laughs> yeah, I'd throw mine in there too. I've had mine <laughs> since, since college, I think since maybe sophomore year of college or something. I've had this chair so yeah it's a bit beat up but I have certainly sat in it a lot if that's <laughs> something that makes you want to pay for a chair I don't know why it would I don't want to think about why it would so let's continue <laughs> yeah I guess it might actually cost a fortune to try to ship an office chair as well so <laughs> too. okay yeah. we're not we're not going to we're not going to sell off the office chairs but no uh, 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now we know that the community is out there in case we ever wanted to. So I don't know, mm-hmm. as uh, as far as banter goes, I don't know what you might have, but I feel like we are absolutely obligated to discuss the uh, the Cleveland Indians who last lost last season. They are up to 15, 15 consecutive wins, which is the longest winning streak since the, what was it, the 2002 Oakland Athletic? Is that the right answer? Uh, yeah, there was a, a Giants team in there, wasn't there? Oh, there was, was there? I was, I was just reading a summary of this, and let's see, this is a Bill Bear news post about this at Hardball Talk. He says the last team to win at least 15 in a row was the 2002 to 2003 Giants who won 15 straight. Oh, okay. So that's a cross-season mm. winning streak. So that's, eh, 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 eh. That doesn't really count Don't the care. same way. So yeah, within the same season, it is the, the Moneyball A's from 2002. And yeah, it's, I mean, there are a bunch of streaks this long, but a lot of them are really archaic, and there are not a lot of teams that have done this in recent years. So, yeah, I think Joe Sheehan had the numbers in one of his recent newsletters, so I'm trying to dig that up. But it's more rare than I even thought it was, I think. His, uh, let's see, longest winning streaks. Obviously, there's like, you know, 26 games is the longest winning streak. That's the 1916 Giants, but in the post-war era or in the integration era at least it's really not a lot there are five teams that have had 15 in that time since jackie robinson and then only five teams that have had more and yeah it's been since 2002 with the a's and then before that 1977 royals had 16 but that's yeah for others you have to go back even further so this is a rare streak at this point. Travis Sochik wrote on Fangraphs on September 1st about how the Indians, quote, look like AL favorites, and since then they have won eight more consecutive games. There are two things, uh, there are some angles here that make the streak more and less impressive, so if I wanted to throw some cold water on everyone, the Indians' last eight consecutive wins have come against the White Sox, who are terrible, and the Tigers, who have rendered themselves terrible through subtraction. So these are not major league teams they've been defeating, but then on the other hand, the streak begins began by sweeping the Yankees. Previous to that, they swept the Royals and took a game from the Red Sox. And importantly, the last 11 wins have all been on the road. The Indians swept an 11-game road trip, which is, well, I guess it's no longer unbelievable. I I have to (laughs) believe that this has happened, but Mm -hmm. uh, at least it shifts the odds. The home field advantage is, uh, we always think of it as being like four percentage points, right? So it makes the the White Sox and the Tigers a little more difficult to beat. And the Mm -hmm. thing that has stood out well, let me take that back. Okay, the thing that stands out to me the most about the Indians is the fact that they've won 11 or 15, 15 games in a row. The other thing that I can't help but notice is that in third place, according to Fangraphs, now this is going to use Fangraphs Pitching War. Third place, we have the Dodgers, 21.4. Second place, Red Sox, 21.6. First place, Indians, 26.3. The Indians have separated themselves. Rena quick analysis yesterday that it was not actually about the Indians, but I went back to, I think it was 1995. I was trying to analyze. I was actually trying to figure out if the Orioles have the worst pitching staff that might ever belong to a playoff team. The answer is, I don't know. I didn't complete the research, but based on that analysis, the Indians are on track to have what would be the best full season pitching year in at least these two plus decades. Hmm. Might have to write about this next week. In fact, almost certainly will if Travis hasn't already beaten me to it without me noticing. So Indians on track to have maybe the greatest team pitching season in a while. Andrew Miller has been injured. Corey Kluber missed a month. Hasn't really mattered. This team is outstanding. Uh, Yep, Indians are good. 
That's what I got. Yeah, that's always kind of where I come down with winning streaks is I don't have a whole lot to say about them because they don't teach us that much about a team because ultimately it's a couple weeks of performance, really. And basically it just adjusts our opinion of the team slightly one direction or another. We already thought this was a good team. Now we think maybe it's an even better team. But coming into the year, I thought this was, I think, probably the best team in the league or certainly you know, top two. And it took a while for that to really show up and for them to distance themselves from the other AL Central teams. But that has finally happened now. They even had like back-to-back doubleheaders, didn't they? They had on August 30th, they played two games against the Yankees. And then Friday, August 1st, they had back-to-back games on, on the same day. I mean, against the Tigers in Detroit and then had to keep playing Detroit and then had to go to the Chicago Yeah, it's really impressive that they've done this. And we got an email actually from a listener named Charlie, and he says, I just saw a tweet listing all of the 15-game winning streaks since 1947 and ranking them by average margin of victory. The 2017 Indians led the group with an average margin of 5.4 runs. The 1951 Giants, however, had a streak with a margin of 1.9 runs. So my question is, which is more improbable? My first thought is that what the Indians have done is more impressive, but the more I've stared at that 1.9, The more I've thought about how crazy lucky a team must be to string those wins together by a few runs. So that is a good question. This makes what the Indians are doing even more impressive because they are just dominating opponents and these games often haven't even been close. I don't know the answer to that question. I guess if you told me that a team was going to have a 1.9 run differential over a certain span, I would say it's less likely that they would have won all of those games than if you told me the Indians number. So in that sense, the Giants number is more improbable or streak is more improbable. But on the other hand, maybe it is more improbable that a team could put together that kind of dominance over a span of 15 games. So the Indians streak is certainly more impressive. Maybe it's more unlikely too. And uh, not to be lost in all this is by, oh, by the way, the Arizona Diamondbacks have won 13 consecutive teams so uh and they've also i think within that streak they've won six against the dodgers uh i think that's accurate last seven in a row and something of something as well so (laughs) yeah that has also made this whole i mean there are three interesting streaks going on right now and the diamondbacks obviously have dramatically reduced the dodgers lead not to any worrisome degree because the lead was so huge when it started but they have really chopped it in half or something close to that just over this span and yeah and we haven't seen two coinciding streaks of this length ever i think has been established Mm -hmm. so that has increased the intrigue around this it's it's impressive stuff all around and the opposite of that for the dodgers i just we haven't learned all that much about the teams really we've learned that maybe the dodgers are not the best team ever and we've learned that the diamondbacks and indians are good but we knew those things before the streak started and maybe we have just uh, we know them a bit more now than we did before that but as you pointed out in a recent post i think the diamondbacks success this season is very surprising if you kind of zoom out and look at it at a full season level relative to preseason expectations because we thought they'd be decent pretty good but not this great this is they're a really good team now 
Yeah, that pitching staff has uh, just greatly exceeded expectations. I, mm-hmm. I'm sure that within the next few weeks, either on this podcast or your other one or in both and in posts, I don't know, but it's going to be time to put together posts that talk about what all this means for the playoffs. And the answer mm-hmm. is nothing. The answer is pretty much always nothing that I don't want to burst any bubbles, I guess, but there's never really been any compelling evidence to demonstrate that how a team plays down the stretch has any real effect on how it plays in the playoffs. Mm-hmm. It all matters kind of no matter what. And uh, of course, there is the additional factor of how playoff rosters are different and playoff Mm -hmm. player usage is different. And you know what? Honestly, the Dodgers did not want to go into a slump like this. That much is clear. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't think that they ever really cared about winning 116 games, which, by the way, is now impossible for them to do in the regular Mm -hmm. season. But as much as I don't think they ever wanted a slump, they're not playing for anything like almost not anything and so while i don't want to sit here and argue that the dodgers aren't trying their best eh, what's their what's their motivation to use some i don't know theater 101 kind of language mm-hmm. i don't know what they really have aside from just trying to keep everyone healthy and so mm-hmm. uh i was disappointed the other day to see that wilmer font got blown up because i was kind of big on wilmer font's triple a season but wilmer font is not going to be pitching for the dodgers in the uh in the playoffs so that just doesn't really matter so good for the demobacks for building their own self-confidence i guess and bad for the Dodgers, I guess, for not winning the most games that any team has ever won, but my opinion of them has not really changed in any meaningful way. Indians, I feel better about them, but I was uh, looking at some math going back and just before the Indians win streak began at Fangraphs, we had them projected to win 61% of their remaining games. Now that the win streak has, well, it's not over, but now that it's at 15 games, they're projected to win 62% of their remaining games. So yeah. the uh, the math, not really that convinced that anything much has changed of significance for the Indians. But what I do like, one angle that I really like going back to with the Indians is, let me just make sure that I have this correct, but I'm pretty sure that the Indians' two most valuable players this year have been Corey Kluber and Jose Ramirez, and that that is definitely true. So at least according to Fangraphs, Corey Kluber, 6.1 war, second place on the team, Jose Ramirez, 5.2 war. And what is great about this to me is that neither Corey Kluber nor Jose Ramirez were ever anything when they were younger. They were just, they were non-prospects. I always like to analyze which good players were never really prospects. I'll probably do it again in the offseason or next week. Depends on how desperate I get. But I guess the Indians get to come with Kluber and Ramirez, who are two out of nowhere kind of uh, star players. And and the other, or one of the other really good teams in the American League gets to come at you with Jose Altuve and Dallas Keuchel, who were never Mm -hmm. anything either. Altuve was always an interesting prospect, but I don't think I need to go into detail about what made him so interesting and why he wasn't considered mm-hmm. a premium prospect but that stuff is fun and it doesn't teach us any new lessons because this is something that's been written about before but it's uh it's always a helpful reminder to uh to recall that oh, sometimes players just become star players from nothing yeah mm-hmm. uh you got anything else yeah one quick thing i don't know whether you saw this tweet a couple nights ago but there was a framing attempt in a Padres game hmm. that I think is notable, and I will send it to you now just so you can watch it and react in real time. But you know how sometimes you'll see like a, a highlight of a little league catcher who tries to frame some pitch that's like, you know, five feet out of the strike zone and just like <laughs> yanks it back into the zone and once in a while they even get a call because whatever it's kids and it's little league umpires but it just looks very silly that they even tried to do it you don't usually see that 
at the big league level because umpires are pretty good. Catchers know that they're not going to get those calls. They're not going to try to get those calls. But on, let's see, I think it was September 6th. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was the what Wednesday night in the Padres game with the Cardinals. There was a framing attempt. And this is not Austin Hedges, the framing savant. This is Hector Sanchez, who was catching for the Padres that night. And he's uh, about an average framer, maybe a a little bit worse than that. But he made an attempt to frame the pitch by Denelson Lamette that bounced and bounced far from the plate even. And uh, it it bounced, uh, I would say, oh, I don't know, outside by maybe six inches or so, but in front of the plate. And Sanchez kind of short hops it, gloves it, and then pulls it back into the center of the strike zone. <laughs> like, very obviously, just moves it like a couple feet and holds it there for a, a couple seconds as if he has a real shot at getting this call. He did not get the call. <laughs> Do you think, looking at this, do you think that this is something that Hector Sanchez knew he was doing, or do you think that this is just a reflex Pure that he reflex. has as a catcher? I mean, I would think that it's not a reflex to frame a <laughs> ball that bounces in the dirt. I, I don't know. I mean, I could see if it if he actually caught the ball on the fly. That's usually a prerequisite for getting a strike call. But this, to me, <laughs> the way he holds it there, as if he might actually get the call on this one, there's just zero chance and i would think that if anything this has to hurt you right because i mean an umpire is going to see this very obvious attempt to manipulate him it's almost an insult to say that you had any shot of getting this call so this seems like just a bad idea for catcher umpire relations period (laughs) but it's very silly. I will link to the gift so that everyone can enjoy it because I know I did. And the hitter who's uh, who's in the box watching the pitch, watching the pitch, doesn't seem to have any <laughs> understanding of what uh, what took place behind the no. play. The umpire doesn't have any visible reaction. The pitcher goes out of the frame. The fans <laughs> behind the screen are at a Padres game, so they're clearly not paying attention. So I don't yeah. Hector Sanchez is lucky that there was a TV camera focused on this and that somebody <laughs> made a gif because otherwise this is going to be lost in the ether. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, this is very silly. Very silly. Okay, well, I guess going through uh, going through the emails, there are a few other things I wanted to mention. Thaddeus wrote in with a funny-looking box score from a game, a minor league game between Florida and Dayton. This was, I believe, the last game of the season. And what made this game notable is that Dayton utility player, I don't know if he was a utility player, but he sure as hell is a <laughs> utility player now, Blake Butler. Blake Butler was batting leadoff for the Dayton Tortugas going up against the Florida Fire Frogs. I don't know what's going on in minor league baseball today, but this is where we are. And uh, Blake Butler is a guy, he is, uh, he was a 15th round draft pick a few years ago. He is uh, 23 years old. He's in A ball. And this year he had a 559 OPS following last year's 577 OPS. So you're a very good baseball player, Blake Butler. I've got some bad news about your career, but... (laughs) Nevertheless, Blake Butler was leading off for Dayton, and the thing that he did, or at least the thing that the team allowed him to do, was play all nine positions. He went in order, first base, second base, shortstop, third base, left field, center field, right field, catcher, pitcher. He went 0 for 3, the plate with a walk, struck out, and he uh, batted 212. But I wanted to ask you, what to you is more impressive about Blake Butler's game, which, again... 
granted, I don't know how impressive it is, but there were two things, two things about his game that get my attention, and I don't know how to rank them. One, Blake Butler caught a shutout inning. He was a catcher. He has never caught before, at least not as a professional, not to my knowledge, uh, but he was able to catch. It looks like he caught Aaron Quillen, Kien. I don't really know. Mm-hmm. Well, you know what, Aaron, if you want me to pronounce your name, then you should get really good at baseball, and then I'll have to figure it out. But <laughs> yeah. Blake Butler, I think, caught a shutout inning thrown by Aaron Q, and then in the ninth, he threw a shutout inning in which he allowed two hits, no walks, no strikeouts, but no runs in the inning. So what do you think is is more remarkable, that he caught or pitched a shutout inning? Hmm, that's a tough one. Well, without knowing anything about how the innings went and without having seen him catch or pitch I would say it's certainly got to be more rare for a position player who is not a catcher to catch than for a position player who is not a pitcher to pitch we see that fairly regularly these days and there are emergency catchers on every roster but it's rare that those emergencies happen and even the emergency catchers are probably the emergency catchers because they have some sort of catching experience at some level and maybe he did too so you know if he used to catch in high school or college i don't know what his educational background is if he did catch as an amateur then it wouldn't be so impressive to me but i guess just based on the sheer numbers of people who do this probably it is more impressive that he caught than that he pitched although i don't know what the rate of scoreless innings is among position player pitchers i know that you have detailed that position player (laughs) pitchers BABIP is not really bad but on the whole of course they are pretty bad at pitching so probably the rate of scoreless outings is is fairly low I can uh, I can tell you this this was uh, actually Butler's seventh pitching appearance of the season it's just been that kind of year for the Dayton Tortugas and Blake Butler and in his uh, six and two-thirds innings of work he's allowed one run with uh, three strikeouts two walks so good for Blake Butler so now I'm going to go with the catching catching being more difficult yeah maybe he has a long career of doing everything Mm -hmm. ahead of him I don't really know. Did you have anything to... Uh, I think that you did not. So, Monica Abbott. Have yeah. we ever discussed Monica Abbott before? Have you no. ever discussed Monica Abbott before? No. I really was... I don't know if I was aware of what she has done before we got this email. I definitely was not. So, we got an email from Elliot, a uh, listener, Elliot, who sent in a copy of a, a genuine magazine page yes. that a coworker, right? A coworker left on his mm-hmm. desk. Mm-hmm. Uh, this appears to be from Sports Illustrated, the June one of the June editions. I don't know how often Sports Illustrated goes out, but this article is dated at the bottom June 26, 2017, Sports Illustrated, page 22. This is an article written by one Kelsey McKinney. It's titled The Case for Monica Abbott, and Elliot's co-worker has written on top of the page the question in blue ink, better than Kershaw? Question <laughs> mark. Monica Abbott is a softball pitcher who appears to be a god a god yes. a goddess, I should say, of softball. And I was completely unaware of this. And we got a, another email this week that asked whether we think of softball as a form of baseball. I don't have a very informed opinion about that. I think that they're obviously very similar, but I don't know if I would go so far as to say that softball is a form of baseball. But I can mm-hmm. say that I am softball ignorant, mm-hmm. or at least unaware. There's just too much baseball to keep my attention on. So I definitely had not heard of Monica Abbott until this email. Had you ever heard the name? No, I don't think so, no. Well, Monica Abbott is unbelievable. Yes. And among the reasons why, so the uh, the softball mound, uh, many of you might be aware that the softball mound is 43 feet away from home plate. 
baseball mound, of course, is 17 and a half feet further away. This is why you get baseball pitchers who throw in the 90s and softball pitchers who sometimes throw in the 70s and no one in softball can hit. Well, mm-hmm. one of the reasons why is that those pitches, of course, look a lot faster because there's it's all pitching is all a matter of that how much time you have to react. Mm-hmm. When the mound is nearly a third of the distance closer to home plate, it's hard yeah. to pick up the ball. But I will I'll just uh, read one line here. The batter enters the box and Abbott lowers her six foot three. My God. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the batter enters the box and Abbott lowers her six foot three frame into a crouch somewhere between a skier's and a sprinter's, what she calls the quote power position. From there, with a precise combination of grace and strength, she explodes upwards, achieving triple extension, the ankle, the knee, and the hip all in a line so that after she releases the softball, it screams across the plate at 77 miles per hour. That's the equivalent of a 108 mile per hour major league fastball. So Monica Abbott, hardest thrower in softball to my knowledge, to the article's knowledge, it seems mm-hmm. like there's a reference here to pitches who are some pitches are able to throw 70 some pitches are able to throw 73 abbott is out there throwing 77 which is the equivalent of 108 which means that her effective velocity exceeds the greatest effective velocity we've ever seen in baseball because mm-hmm. Aralis chapman is topped out at 105 so there's that now Malika abbott has lost which flummoxed me when i was reading this article because it <laughs> began with the knowledge that she could throw basically 108 miles per hour yeah and then i scroll down and realized that there are games where she's lost in allowed runs but she let's see she just went 19 and 3 and nobody else won more than 10 games she had an era under one where the second best era was over two one other pitcher hit triple digit strikeouts with 100 abbott had 185 so there's just these unbelievable statistics that abbott has put up and she's put them up since college and she signed the the softball league's first ever million dollar contract which i don't know anything about the softball league economics but worth it it's worth it it's absolutely (laughs) worth it six years but still yeah mm-hmm. and there's a what did it say in here there's a an attendance clause to help sort of a, a attendance incentive i should say attendance mm. bonus is a, a loophole that makes up the rest of the salary because uh, teams do not have much of a budget but long story short here i could i mean might as well just read the entire article on the podcast i'm not going to do that even though it's only one page but for anyone who wants to know more just do a google search for monica abbott who certainly appears to be at least the mike trout or clayton kershaw of her sport and is almost certainly a combination of the two she is, is i don't know as valuable as what peak Shohei otani would be i guess even though she doesn't really hit she is so much better than every other pitcher and she's been doing it for like a decade yeah she's 32 yeah the article just kind of makes the case that she is not only the greatest of all time softball player but that she's just the greatest of all time athlete relative to her competition i don't know enough to say whether that's the case or not but the article does provide plenty of evidence that she is more of an outlier in a lot of respects than anyone in in baseball probably is at this point one last thing i will read from this quote by the time she graduated in 2007 abbott was the all-time ncaa leader in wins 189 strikeouts 2440 and a shutouts 112 with 23 (laughs) no-hitters i don't know how many no-hitters there are in college softball there are probably more than there are in baseball college minor league or major league but 23 no hitters is a lot of no hitters it's underlined here by elliot's co-worker it is a remarkable fact it is the final underline in the article monica abbott unbelievable i don't have anything else to say except that she is unbelievable i am looking yes. at this i've thought about this since when i read the email i cannot believe somebody is this much better than everybody else 
No, I am very glad to know about her. Well, anything else you would like to banter about? Well, I did want to mention, I don't know whether you saw Brandon Belt had like a tweet storm the other day, since deleted, I think very quickly deleted, in which he was responding to fans who were constantly criticizing him. Mm -hmm. And I know that that has been a, a thing with Brandon Belt and Giants fans or some Giants fans for years now, that they seem to be convinced that he is not a good baseball player. And evidently the frustration boiled over for him on this night. And he's been out since August 4th because of a concussion. So that I'm sure has been frustrating too. And just the constant complaints appeared to get to him. So he said, uh, this was like right before a Giants-Rockies game, he started tweeting. He said, if you can give a good enough reason as to why you think I suck so bad, then I will try and convince the Giants to dump me. And so there is a, a long sequence of tweets and quote tweets and replies here where he was going back and forth with a person or people. It's kind of hard to look now because these tweets are gone, but he was asking for hard evidence and data about why he is bad at baseball. And no one was really giving him any. At least these people were not. They were citing batting average and he was telling them to look at OPS and that kind of thing. (laughs) And I mean, I guess that is it. Like Brandon Belt is maybe the best example of just old school analysis that we don't really think of as being part of baseball anymore, coloring a player's reputation even still, because obviously he's a pretty good baseball player. He was worth four wins or so in each of the past two seasons, as well as two seasons before that. And he was playing at roughly that kind of pace this year, other than injuries that have uh, kept him out for some time. He's not an amazing, he's not an MVP player or anything, but He is certainly the last part of a roster, at least on this Giants team, that you would think to complain about because he's been perfectly fine when he's been healthy and no one else has on that team with very few exceptions. So it is strange that he is still encountering this kind of feedback from fans and I guess it's entirely a result of just the most basic baseball things that it seems like we've all been aware of for a decade or two now just that batting average isn't everything he's never been a high batting average guy hit around 280 the last couple seasons he is hitting 240 something this year and hit 240 something a few years ago another injury plagued year so it's partly that it's partly that some fans are maybe just not paying attention to the fact that he walks and it's okay that he doesn't have the highest batting average and of course it is park factors and that is a very difficult park for him I think maybe I've heard Grant make the case that it's like the worst combination of player and park in baseball, possibly because of his handedness and the way he hits and the layout of AT&T Park. So obviously that has hurt him too. And I guess it's just, you know, he's a first baseman and he's never hit more than 18 home runs in a season. And so if you're not adjusting for context and you're not taking into account the good things that he does do, then you would look at him and be underwhelmed at least, maybe. So that seems to be part of it. And it's never great when a baseball player, you know, responds to fans complaints publicly it doesn't really seem like there's a whole lot of upside there usually unless you're Tommy Pham and you're citing Fangraph stats which makes <laughs> makes us like you more if you're doing that but otherwise 
just sinking to the level of the fan who thinks that batting average is everything and is not adjusting for Park. Eh, it's it doesn't really accomplish anything. But I can understand why he would be frustrated because he has been a pretty productive player and has contributed to multiple World Series teams and at least among some segment of the fan base. That has not led to the type of adulation that those things normally do. It's weird. I don't know why Belt seems to get it so much more than any other player. It might be partially just because I I like Grant. And so just as a consequence, I'm a little more aware of what's going on with the Giants. But it, it feels like Belt is one of the like the last holdouts of players who get blasted for antiquated ideas because it feels like everyone for the most part has come around on on everyone else it's it's not even like belt has bad numbers for his career he's he's hit 270 which is fine Mm -hmm. he's gotten on base 36 percent of the time which is good he's slugged 460 in the most pitcher friendly environment in the game he's basically hit as so if you if you compare belt to I don't know. Okay, Matt Carpenter. Let's go with Matt Carpenter. Matt Carpenter, good player. Uh, so we're, we're just going to do career numbers here. Belt batted 268, Carpenter 278. Belt OBP 358, Carpenter 376. Belt is slugged 461. Carpenter has slugged 458. So when you adjust for park, WRC plus, Belt is at 127. Carpenter is at 130. Eh, same player, same basic player. Not a huge, massive, thunderous power threat, but just good you know, like generally good. Yep. And Belt doesn't even have, he doesn't even have like the history of being unclutch or anything that you might mm-hmm. associate with someone just aggravating the fan base. And I, it's not like Belt was ever like a, a top five or top 10 yeah. MLB prospect. That's what I was going to say. Like, he's not like a number one overall pick or something. He's like a fifth round pick. He topped out in the 20s in the top 100 prospect rankings in 2011-2012 I guess those were years where the Giants didn't have a lot of prospects and he would have been their top one I suppose and maybe expectations were disproportionate because of that but really yeah and it's not like he's had some enormous contract which increases expectations what is his top salary that he has made in his career well he's signed now to that 73 million dollar deal but outside of that yeah i don't think he's well i can tell you pretty quick belt so far has topped out at making this year's 8.8 million dollars this would have been i guess his last year of team control yeah and he's about to go up to 17.2 so Mm -hmm. you know he'll get expensive but that's like uh it's just over league average starting pitcher money Mm -hmm. (laughs) so it's not like belt is even all that expensive yeah it's flummoxing it is Yeah, I don't know. Stop picking on Brandon Belt, people. I mean, now, granted, those people could say they just got to him, so which is maybe kind of the whole point. I don't know, and this dovetails neatly into the the conversation we're going to use to end this podcast, but I think this is going to sound stupid, uh, and I know that, but I wonder how much of it... So part of it, there's this element of injury proneness, which fans Mm -hmm. hate, and even though Belt is on what I think now is his fourth concussion... Mm. I think that seems like a, an awfully silly reason to criticize a player <laughs> right. uh, because his brain hurts. So if you're a Giants fan out there who's upset that Brandon Belt is injury prone, you're stupid. <laughs> but other than that, I think that, uh, yeah, this this is going to sound way too stupid, but I think it's true anyway. So I don't care. I think it's a I think it's a, a body language issue. I be, think that yeah. Belt is too shoulder yeah. slumpy <laughs> and people don't respond well to that. You know, so, OK, so you probably saw that the gif that was going around. I think it was this week. Maybe it was last week of Christopher Reeve turning from Clark <laughs> Kent to Superman. Yes. 
right? Just by removing his glasses. Yeah. And so I, uh, I don't really understand much about how to be an actor aside from believing that I could be an actor at a moment's notice. But in any case, I was watching that. And one of, I think like the key is that Christopher Reeve very subtly altered his, uh, his posture as he removed his mm-hmm. glasses so that he became more imposing as a figure as he became, you know, Superman. Right. So he seemed like a very different person, even though literally the only thing he'd done is remove his eyeglasses. Well, I think that Brandon Belt, if I had to guess, I think this comes down to Belt just not conveying the right impression with his body. It's sort of, I guess, the baseball player equivalent of resting bitch yeah. face or something, mm-hmm. where he just doesn't look like you want him to look. He doesn't look like he's big and ripped like you might want a first baseman mm-hmm. to look. And he's nicknamed Baby Giraffe instead of like the <laughs> lion of the safari or ghost in the darkness or yeah. something. So he doesn't have anything that's like particularly menacing about mm-hmm. him. So there's a there's that element. So if yeah, you know, if Prenna Belt just like stood up straight and squared his shoulders, then I think that could or at least could have gone a long way toward changing his perception. But at the end of the day, you'd think you would think that baseball fans would would end up at the numbers and the numbers would determine how they feel about a player. We've seen this when when fans have come to the defense of just like horrible people in the yeah. past being like, well, I don't care as long as he helps my team win baseball right. games. Well, Brandon Belt has helped your team win baseball <laughs> games. That's the only thing that matters yes. here. I don't care if he could have been one win more valuable at some point. Well, he got a concussion. That's not his fault. <laughs> yep. Let up. Yeah. Relax. Agreed. It's fine. Mm-hmm. Better than Eric Hosmer. I don't care. <laughs> yes. Okay. Well, uh, I, I thought this would be a convenient opportunity. I don't know why I said that. I thought this would be an opportunity. Mm-hmm. Didn't need an adjective in there. To pick up a conversation that we sort of touched on months ago. I think uh, I navigated there almost unexpectedly. And uh, I thought it would be worth talking a little bit more about how it seems like baseball writing has changed over the past 10 or 15 years. Now, that's going to be too broad of a topic. And when I say baseball writing, I really mean analytical writing, or at least the uh, the writing that we encounter in analytical spheres. I went back and forth on whether or not we should have uh, some very historically experienced guest on for this segment, but ultimately procrastination won out <laughs> over preparation. So that's where we are. Maybe we'll have a guest for our third revisit of this subject down the road. But with Belt, I guess that would be uh, a nice little uh, entry into how I think it's unusual, especially now, to have a player who seems to get criticized so much, even though the numbers, any number that's worth its salt, mm-hmm. demonstrates that Brandon Belt is a, a very good baseball yeah. player. And it is uh, it is odd that he receives so much criticism because it's just not something that we're used to. So on, I guess to start things off, it I, it is clear without question that analytical writing is more widespread. More people are doing it. Even John Heyman is using war in his articles, for <laughs> God's sake. Like the battle is over. He <laughs> nearly said mm-hmm. the war. Like the, the numbers are out there. They're widespread. People are using them. People are generally more aware of how to use them. And so I think that people have gotten smarter. At least baseball writing has gotten smarter. And we can see this when it comes to I don't know, awards voting where the voting pools are, are evolving over time and they're looking beyond like the triple crown statistics, the, the usual stuff, ERA, mm-hmm. all those things. Baseball writing has gotten smarter. But one of the elements that I have become acutely aware of, and this is something that we talked about before, but I also think that baseball writing has grown more afraid 
to be critical. And I was wondering, I guess, firstly, if you agree with that sentiment? Certainly more reluctant to be critical. I don't know whether fear is part of it. I think, as we've discussed, there are just fewer opportunities to be critical in a sensible way, just because it seems like teams are smarter and are making fewer obvious mistakes. So yeah, I mean, maybe the fact that those opportunities to be critical are rarer then makes you even more reluctant to do it when one actually comes along because you're just out of practice, right? Or it, it feels strange to be critical because that's not what you normally do. It's not your brand. And maybe there's some trepidation or there's some uncertainty because you are so in the habit of saying, well, this was a smart move for both sides and both teams got better or whatever. And when it seems like there is a, a case where there's a lopsided return in a transaction, for instance, then maybe you're going out of your way to look for how it makes sense and why it makes sense. And and we're all just aware that there's more that we don't know now. And so I think there is that, you know, fear, anxiety that maybe we're missing something that is important because we know that that has happened at times. Mm -hmm. There seems to be more of a tendency to grant the benefit of the doubt, which is, of course, a good thing because as the industry has gotten smarter, well, it's gotten smarter in ways beyond what uh, I shouldn't say what we can comprehend, but at least what we're aware of on the outside. So there's there's the inclination to want to to give teams the benefit of the doubt. And and there's also, I think, a difference between how players are written about and at and how teams are written about, because I think that there is my perception. Again, this is all anecdotal. I don't have any numbers to back this up. But my perception, at least, is that that writers are more willing to be critical of teams and front offices than they are specific uh-huh. players. And I think that maybe that's a, maybe it's a shield by numbers kind of situation where with players in particular, we will see a player get written about almost invariably when the player is on some form of upswing. Here's this player. He's breaking out. This player has been really good. Yasiel Puig is back. His uh, article that I was just mm-hmm. reading that was that was at the Ringer, yep. was it not? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, at least I guess one of one of the Yasiel Puig yes. articles was was at the Ringer, and and I do it myself. And I guess the one of the only counterexamples I can come up with this season is what the hell happened with Jonathan Lucroy, which we've all right. written about. But like that one aside, maybe maybe that's why Lucroy was partially upset by the line of questioning because nobody else is getting critical questions about their performance this year. Because otherwise, you get you get things that are written about players who seem to be making improvements, getting better, becoming borderline stars or all stars. And I wonder because. Just as often when we write about a player who seems to be doing something better or is improving, the regression is coming. This is sort of the general form of the Jonah Carey curse, (laughs) I guess. But we have positive publishing bias Mm -hmm. where we are more likely to write about someone who's doing well than doing poorly. Well, then one, the player who's doing well stops doing so well, I guess there's less negative feedback than if someone were to write a critical article and then the player does becomes good afterward. Mm. Because then that seems to fall right in line with the uh, with the contemporary gotcha uh-huh. culture, you know, where if you if you write that hey, this guy's not very good and here's why and then he has a rips off a couple of good games or good weeks, then you're gonna you're gonna hear it. People are gonna make fun of you. Right. But I I don't know. I guess people are less likely to rip on the yeah. writer if he writes something yeah, positive. I I had an article about Aaron Judge come out and about his Mm -hmm. slump and decline in the second half yesterday. And of course, he Mm -hmm. homered on that day, although I actually... (laughs) 
didn't get any tweets because I I wasn't saying Aaron Judge sucks now or something like that. I was just pointing out that he has been considerably worse than he was when he was doing so well. And that I think is Mm -hmm. pretty inarguable. So no one could gotcha me about one homer when he had like 30 in the first half and hasn't done that. (laughs) So I didn't fall prey to that there. But yeah, often that will happen if you say something negative about someone and then a good game or streak comes after that then you will get tweets for the rest of the season from people who were saying like oh i thought he was bad now you wrote about that months ago (laughs) yeah so that's that's never fun yeah i wrote an article last late last year that was trying to uh, poke one single hole in chris bryant's mvp case chris bryant outstanding season so good but I, I demonstrated that, oh, to this point, in important situations, high leverage situations, if you will, he has been unproductive. And his numbers, they were, were plainly mm-hmm. terrible in high leverage situations. He was uh, he was one of the best hitters in baseball when the stakes were not so high. And even when the stakes were like, I don't know, thigh height. I don't know what kind of stakes we're dealing with here. But when the stakes got up to neck level, his numbers were awful. And then almost immediately after I published that article, Brian hit like two of the biggest home runs of the year <laughs> for the Cubs. And so people had a great time with that on Twitter and nothing against them, of course, but I guess maybe maybe there was a, a lack of understanding that no, 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 the numbers are tr- I didn't make these up like this is what's happened. This is not my belief. This is not something that I think that is, is true about him long term, but he absolutely had been unclutched. So I don't know. I guess that's a that's a side tangent. But I don't know if you had to rack your brain. It's always easy to analyze the media in retrospect and i think we it's it would not be hard for us to have sort of a 2020 hindsight situation if we were being critical of the news media at large for sort of aiding and abetting the the current polarized landscape that we have in america also thank you social media but in any case if you were trying to do some sort of current analysis what sort of if any what sort of disservice do you think we might be doing if we believe that coverage is is skewed positive rather out of fear of criticism or, or certainly there's the element of out of fear of, of a player actually reading what's being written because of course now players are, are doing more reading and they're more aware of of analytical writing now than than they've ever been so certainly on some moderately prominent website you could be writing a critical article that a player would read and then you end up feeling like i don't know a beat writer which at home bloggers don't yeah. really want to do but do you think that there's some sort of disservice being here? I don't know because the stakes of what we do in general are so low that uh, I'm not sure it's not as if, you know, if we're not writing about some player who's playing poorly and I mean, first of all, the, the fans of that player's team, I think, are always aware that he's, he's playing poorly. <laughs> Sometimes they're aware of that even when he's not playing poorly in the Brandon Belt case. But I think it doesn't go unnoticed if a player is slumping or something and... It almost feels like the default progression for a lot of players is to get worse because players, at least beyond a certain age, they tend to get worse. And so it's strange. It's like you just wrote posts about Doug Fister and Justin Verlander and how they are kind of back to their old selves in in Fister's case or back to a slightly different but good self in Verlander's case. And that's notable because those guys got worse and... Once you're a pitcher and you're in your 30s and you're declining, we don't expect you to bounce back 
to what you were before. And so if you continue to be bad, it's just not an interesting article. I mean, just to point out, you know, earlier this season, if you had written about Doug Fister, it would have been, well, Fister is still throwing slowly (laughs) and he seems to have lost his stuff. And that was the case last year too. And it's still the case. And uh, it's just not an interesting article. Whereas now you're pointing out, oh, somehow he has regained a lot of the velocity that he used to have. And that's atypical. We're always writing about atypical things. And at least once you get to a certain age in baseball, being worse is the typical thing. So that's just better fodder for an article, I think, when someone manages to turn back the clock in that way. And if a player is worse in some reason, I mean, you know, we wrote about like why Aaron Judge is is not playing as well. Like if a player seems to be getting worse in a way that affects our long-term expectations for him, if his plate discipline has fallen apart or something like that, I think we would still write about that perhaps, and we still do sometimes. And you've written about... Gosh, I have so many players, I don't know, Jake Arietta, for instance, not being as good and, you know, is it a mechanical problem and why is it happening? So I think it still happens, but I think it's just often that an unexpected slump is just a little less inherently interesting than an unexpected improvement. Yeah, and I guess maybe people are tired of reading that, oh, this guy's BABIP right. is too high or it's too low and then that's yeah. just going to regress over time. So yeah, I, I certainly will, will also agree with you on the uh, the issue of stakes where if we were dealing with with something that uh you know mattered <laughs> maybe they would require sort of a refocus but it's an it's an interesting evolution given that this entire sort of field of writing used to make its name on on being snarky mm-hmm. and critical and it's i guess it's sort of funny what happens when you get a little bit of import and access i will uh because we are out of time and because you had mentioned rightly that the every single player has an aging curve and every single player gets worse the natural trend is to get worse especially if you're good if yeah. for no other reason than regression mm-hmm to the mean. If you're great, you're expected to be not so great down the road. This is, we're just going to come right back. You know it had to end with Mike Trout. Mike Trout, no no regression, will not regress, does not regress. I don't know if anybody noticed, but he just had an unbelievable August. He's gotten off to a strong start in September that nobody cares. Over Trout's past, it looks like about two, two and a half weeks, he's got 19 walks and six strikeouts in his last one week. He's got 10 walks and one strikeout. Nobody seems to care. Trout is just out there trying to win the MVP. That will be a conversation that, well, at least that's going to be something that we will both, I'm Mm -hmm. sure, write about if for no other reason than the people who run our websites would like for us to write Mm -hmm. about that we'll try to avoid getting the criticism that ken rosenthal (laughs) has gotten but it seems like you need to mention let's see how can you avoid the internet getting mad you have to include jose altuve i think you have to say altuve is the favorite because that seems to be the consensus position even though it's probably wrong then you have chris sale has to be in there Corey kluber i guess has Mm -hmm. to be in there trout and jose ramirez seems like people are really all about you including jose ramirez Uh (laughs) <laughs> maximum maximum player inclusion so as to avoid the fury <laughs> right. of the internet all right well you have to go face that fury now <laughs> <laughs> friday chats so furious all right you can support the podcast on patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectively wild five listeners who have already pledged their support include spencer robert sarah luthy hannah miller and tom lasco 
Thanks to all of you. And I'm just going to do the random drawing for our raffle in real time right now. I will find out who won this raffle along with you. So I've gone to the random name picker at miniwebtool.com. As instructed, I have entered all of the names in this field, each name on a separate line. Some people's names are there only once. Others who donated more than $10 are there multiple times, in some cases many times. All is as it should be. All I have to do is click on this button. It says pick a random name, and this tool will pick a random name. So let's do it. Three, two, one. Pick a random name. And the winner is Andy Engelhart, who I believe was actually our biggest donor. So the probabilities paid off. Andy, thank you for your donation. Congratulations. I will be in touch. And again, thanks very much to everyone who donated, whether you wanted the microphone or not. You can join our Facebook group. Now it's 6,500 members at facebook.com slash groups slash Effectively Wild. You can rate and review and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for editing assistance. If you're looking for something else to listen to, Michael Bauman and I talked to Tony Bongino on the most recent episode of The Ringer MLB Show. We got his longtime baseball insider perspective on the Red Sox Yankees sign-stealing scandal. Keep your questions and comments for me and Jeff coming via email at podcast.pancrafts.com or via the Patreon messaging system. Have a wonderful weekend. We will be back next week. Yeah!